Just a heads up, y'all. This episode contains some salty language, which means it's going to be some cussing. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker. And I'm Gene Demby. Now, Gene, the end of 2022 is upon us. And with that, you get all of these end-of-year lists, you know, like the 50 best movies of the year, top 10 literary debuts of 2022, or, you know, 20 best albums of the year that weren't Beyonce's renaissance. And here at Code Switch, we have our own little version of that. Mm-hmm. Today, we talk about the television shows that we really dug from this past year. Shows that delighted us, shows that infuriated us, and shows that shook us to our very core. Parker, I'm curious, though, like, were there any shows that did those things for you? I'm glad you asked, Gene. I've got to say, the show that made me want to hug myself with joy is the new interview with the vampire. Have you watched it yet? I have not watched it, but I... I saw the original version with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise from way back in the 1990s. So, like, I'm curious about the show. What's the deal with this new show? Oh, my gosh. It's incredible. Okay. So, it's on AMC+, and it's the best thing I've seen on TV all year. And I never say that. Mm -hmm. It does that thing that I'm always a little bit leery of, which is race-bent casting. Right. And I guess we got to explain the story comment, but race-bent casting is when, like, a, a show or a movie changes a character's race from the source material, whether it's, like, a novel or whatever, to make it more relevant or more modern or just more marketable. But for a lot of shows, you know, you just can't swap out the race of a character and not have to change other stuff because race matters enough that it will, like, affect the way other parts of the story have to work. Right. Race matters in the context of most things. In the original Interview with the Vampire novels by Anne Rice, Louis the character that Brad Pitt played in the movie, was a slave owner in the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. And in the new AMC version, Louis is black. So probably not a slave owner in the new version? <laughs> Definitely not a slave owner in this new version. Mm-hmm. This version is set in the early 20th century, and Louis, who is played by Jacob Anderson, y'all Game of Thrones fans might remember him as Grey Worm, is black and gay. Color, white, Creole, French. Queer, half queer, mostly queer, what is it? Non-discriminating. Complicated situation we got here is what I'm saying. I mean, did they say queer in the early 20th century? I mean... mean, It's a bit of an anachronism, but... And also it's a show about vampires. (laughs) Like, we could take some (laughs) liberties, yeah. But they don't just make Louis black. They explore what it means in the world that they're in. So in this instance, Louis has to make himself subservient to white businessmen in order to get ahead. And you have someone like Lestat, a 200-year-old French vampire, played by the seductive Sam Reed, who sees this situation and immediately is like, my guy, you don't have to live this way. These men look down on you. I have to say, I find it appalling how men like yourself are treated in this country of yours. Do you suffer these indignities for some larger purpose? And so, like, in the novel and in the Brad Pitt movie, Lestat offers to turn Louis into a vampire? Is that how it goes? Yes. And Louis is very sold on this idea. And something kind of magical happens. Louis is able to explore the rage he has had all this time in being forced to humble himself. I had let them talk to me like that so long, I stopped hearing it. Yes, uh, of course, sir. Subject verb agreement, sir. Smile, nod, yes, sir. They all came from the same organ inside me. An organ unknown to science at the time, because what scientists would look for an organ found only in black men who use their weakness to rise? I mean, but wasn't the source text 
pretty gay before. Like, I remember the 1994 movie with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, like, would have made so much more sense if Louis and Lestat were lovers instead of, like, <laughs> moody, possessive frenemies. Most things would make sense that way. In the early 90s, to make a film about two overtly queer vampires would have still been taboo. Of course. But now all that um, is out of the way and Lestat and Louis are allowed to be lovers. But anyway, there are just all of these fun little nuances in the new show. It even has its own version of code switching. So, like, in the book, Louis and Lestat turn a young girl into a vampire named Claudia. And in this instance, Claudia is a 14-year-old Creole girl. And in the lore of the show, since Louis and Claudia were transformed by Lestat, they can talk to each other through their minds. Mm -hmm. But Lestat can't hear them. So you can hear him, but he can't. That make him the dumb one? (laughs) What's funny? (laughs) If he makes you, he can't hear your thoughts anymore. Okay, so you have these two black characters who secretly communicate to each other in front of the white vampire that created them. So basically, they have like a little telepathic head nod. Exactly. Like a little telepathic nod. That's, that's fun. I might, I might want to hide the show. It sounds fun. But now we should tee up some other TV faves from our team. This next one is one you might have heard of. It's an Emmy Award winner. It's a little less fantastical than gay black vampires in early 20th century New Orleans. In fact, it hits really close to home for one of our teammates, Leah Danella. Leah, what's good? I'm so happy that you're here. We get to chop it up. You've been out of pocket for a little while. Hey, Jean. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. I've been in Tennessee for the past couple months working on a little side piece, but I am very excited to be back with all of you today. A side piece. I hope... You know, your fiancé is cool with that. Anyway, what TV obsession (laughs) are you bringing us today? I'm fascinated. I am here to talk about Abbott Elementary. Ooh. Yes. Season two is airing right now, and for people who haven't seen it yet, the show is a sitcom kind of in that, like, faux documentary style, like The Office or Parks and Rec. Real quick, like, who are the faux documentarians in these shows? Who are they? And they have, like, 15,000 hours of (laughs) recordings to use. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, so Abbott Elementary follows the faculty at a majority black public elementary school where most teachers don't last more than a year. Mm -hmm. And the second season starts with the main character, the aggressively earnest newbie teacher, Janine, who's ready to start the new school year fresh and full of purpose, until she pulls into the parking lot and sees the principal hosting a cookout. Ava! Why is a man cooking ribs in my parking spot? What is happening? It's game day, baby. It's development. So Janine is very, very dedicated, a bit naive, and she is obsessed with making Abbott Elementary the very best it can be. And she's constantly being foiled, mostly because Abbott is a poor public school, and they have to navigate a lot of shenanigans. What do you think you're doing? Oh, um, just sprucing up the place. That charter school had that fresh coat of paint, so if we just... We're not Addington. We're an actual public school, and you can't paint the walls. Classroom decor is set by the Philadelphia Department of Education, animal shelters, and traffic. Well, trust me, the blue looks worse. Also working at the school, there's this amazing cast of characters. So you got Barb, who's the no-nonsense veteran teacher. Gregory, the stoic but kind-hearted sub-termed permanent teacher. There's the slightly unhinged principal, Ava, (laughs) who you've been hearing. Uh, Melissa, another veteran teacher. Um, The young, white, do-gooder history teacher, Jacob. 
Anyway, all these teachers work in a school in the great city of Philadelphia, which is why I'm particularly excited to talk to you about this show, Gene. I don't know if people know you have a bit of a connection to the place. I mean, it's come up once or twice on the podcast. You know what I mean? Anyway, Leah, don't back brand new in front of the company because you are a Philly person too. You are from the area. Your mom lives in Philly proper. Your little Philly accent and your little Philly saying come out <laughs> at the strangest times. We are family. You need to own it. No, it's true. It's true. And that's kind of you to say we are family. But I was definitely a suburban kid. And I feel like even though we both went to public schools in the greater Philadelphia area, those schools could not have been more spiritually or materially different. Hmm. Uh, Gene, my understanding is that the schools you went to actually had a lot in common with Abbott Elementary. Yeah, like the fictional Abbott Elementary literally looks like my elementary school. It's uncanny. My elementary school was also all black. All but one of my teachers were black women, like Barb. Draymond was in my very first class. Oh, such a beautiful child. He was going through a lot at home. As an aside, like, she reminds me so much of Miss Washington, who was my second grade teacher. Hey, Miss Washington, if you're listening. <laughs> um, but the hallways of my elementary school were, like, lined with these pictures with little bios of, like, black luminaries. Like, you know those paintings where, like, Oprah is driving with Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman <laughs> <laughs> on the way to brunch or something? Or, like, Malcolm X and Barack Obama playing spades or whatever. <laughs> oh, what a world that would be. That's kind of what it was like to walk through the halls in my elementary school. Like, you're going to get this black history, even if it's completely shorn mm. of context. <laughs> also, everyone at my elementary school and my middle school got free lunches. I grew up in a poor and working class black neighborhood. The kids who were zoned in my elementary school reflected that. But I know, like, that wasn't really your public school experience in the Philly area at all? Nope. Uh, I grew up in Radnor, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb about 10 miles outside the city. Mm -hmm. And unlike your school or Abbott Elementary, the Radnor schools were kind of swimming in money. Uh, We had a literal indoor swimming pool in the building, Um, a million-dollar turf field that was uh, donated. It was a gift of an uh, anonymous alumni. What? God damn. This is a public school? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. And almost all of the students who went to Radnor came from upper middle class or straight up just like wealthy families, Hmm. which meant that teachers didn't have to worry about anything but lesson planning and coming up with these really fun, creative lesson plans. Like when I was in fifth grade, we got to build a life-size geodesic dome to learn about geometry. Wow. That sounds amazing, but I'm hearing a but slash however that's kind of implied. Yeah, there, there are some big caveats. I mean, for one thing, it was an incredibly white school. Mm-hmm. I was usually the only black kid in my classes. Um, and in terms of teachers from kindergarten through 12th grade, I had exactly two black teachers. One in second grade, the other for eighth grade English. So you saw a black adult in your school like once every six years <laughs> or so? Correct, except when my dad got called to come deal with our shenanigans. (laughs) You mischievous little Danella scamps. Occasionally. Um, (laughs) Anyway, watching Abbott Elementary had me thinking a lot about what makes a good school, using your air quotes around good, Gene. Because the school in the show is obviously struggling in a lot of ways. They have to fight super hard to get some really basic resources. Everything from school supplies to a teacher's aid to a wheelchair-accessible ramp. In one episode, the district refuses to fix the broken bathrooms in the school until literally every single one of them is unusable. I think it's broken! Man, this is messier than Temple Homecoming 74. 
The kindergarten toilet somehow took out all the second floor toilets with it. And I just got off the phone with the city. They said they can't do anything until next week. My school did not have to deal with those things, like, at all. Hmm. You know, our editor, Steve Drummond, who also edits the NPR ed team, and he himself is a former public school teacher, he watches the show, too, and he said, this is actually like a real big policy problem that the show makes very funny. But being under-resourced like this leads to a lot of really dedicated teachers burning out and leaving the schools that really need them the most because they're just tired of, like, you know, trying to plug holes and keeping things together with duct tape. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, and it seems like a huge problem. It's a source of so much frustration. But it's funny because watching the show, I'm always still weirdly jealous of all of those kids for, one, getting to be around a ton of other black kids, Mm. and two, being taught consistently by black teachers. Going through a school system where blackness isn't pathologized as it definitely could be in my school system seems like it might have had some uh, psychological benefits. (laughs) So I feel like I'm going to regret asking you this question, Leah, but what do you mean when you say that blackness was pathologized at your schools? Mm, um, For one thing, we basically only acknowledged that black people existed if we were talking about slavery or if we were doing like a, you know, Black History Month lesson. Of course. And then there were all these things like in fifth grade, my class did a little simulation where all of these white students and me uh, were asked to hide paper dolls around the classroom. Mm -hmm. And then if you found someone else's doll and turned it into the teacher as a deputy slave catcher what uh you were given candy oh what <laughs> yeah and then there's a the classic when we read huck finn uh you know we had to read that book aloud in class and there was one kid who got asked to read a lot because he did the best black voice according to the teacher oh my god like ugh, i bet he sounded like foghorn leghorn or something <laughs> if only he sounded that good uh <laughs> And for all of the obvious resource problems facing Abbott Elementary, it seems like something that messed up would never happen at a school like that, real or fictional. Mm. Um, Whereas it it was the kind of thing that I saw happen all the time at my very well-funded, very well-resourced school. Hmm. And now that I have a kid, I spend a lot of time sort of fretting about, you know, what I want for him in the school. Um, And one of the things that's really important to me is that he grows up affirmed and supported by a school, like the way I was in my elementary school. But... To your point, the kind of school that does those things is much more likely to be, like, poorly mm. considered, right, and poorly perceived because that's going to be a black school with black students. And there's there's lots of research that shows that even if a school like Abbott Elementary had student outcomes, like a better resource school, it wouldn't be able to, like, override the racist skepticisms about the school quality. Like, how parents rate schools in cities is shaped by their hangups over race and class. Like, we know that a school's overall test scores or college acceptance numbers are basically just telling you, like, what the income level of the parents are, right? Like, good public schools, like, I'm doing the air quotes now, on paper, they will always look a lot like, well, the the kind of schools you went to. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what I like so much about Elementary. It's this very fun, silly, kind of cute show, but I think it does a really good job of complicating the idea and the image of what a good school is or could be. Yeah, like what a good teacher looks like. Mm -hmm. Like, school is where we spend so many of our waking hours until we're 18. We spend more time at school than we do talking to our parents. So it's a place that just shapes, like, our identity, our self-esteem, our understandings of how the world works. And so how we answer that question that you raised, like, what makes a school good, is, like, a really personal and important question. Exactly. 
The show is ABC's Abbott Elementary. Our fearless editor, Leah Danella, interrupted her fellowship. It's so nice to be back here with you, even just for a minute. Seriously. Jean, it's so good to be back, even for a minute. All right, y'all, coming up, a more serious take on a 90s sitcom classic. He ain't with the culture, Carlton. And clearly you ain't either. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Glassdoor. Making a career change can feel a lot like stepping into the unknown. But what if you could get a sneak peek inside a company before you even applied for a job? With Glassdoor, you can. You'll find candid reviews and ratings, salary info, and answers from the people who know, employees. Get started at glassdoor.com slash look inside and find a job that loves you back. Parker. Gene. Code switch. It's that time of year, you know, where hopefully you get a little downtime to lay around, to kick it, just catch up on some shows that you've been putting off for a while, maybe binge one or two in your downtime. So we're sharing some of our TBS sessions from the past year as suggestions for you. Our next show is actually based on a smash hit sitcom from the 90s. Y'all know what I'm talking about. It's a story all about how one dude's life got flipped turned upside down when he was sent to move with his auntie and his uncle in Bel Air. But this time, the story of the Fresh Prince has been reimagined as a drama. Let me ask you something, Will. You care if you live or die? Yeah. Me too. That was a clip from Bel Air, which is, of course, a reworking of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. And this show was the choice of our teammate, Karen Grigsby Bates. KGB was good. Hey, Jean. And you're right. Bel Air is the darker brother of The Fresh Prince. Mm-hmm. It starts in Philadelphia. West Philadelphia, as the theme song goes. So that's where the main character was born and raised. On the playground was where he spent most of his days. Yeah, that's it. But in this new Bel Air, the main character ran afoul of a local drug runner and bullied. Mm. They have a testy encounter on the basketball court. Someone pulls a gun. And the Will character, played by Jabari Banks, gets sent to jail. Wait, so this cat's real name is Banks? Like, for real? His real name is Banks, for real, and he's very good. So this role was kismet because, of course, Will goes to live with his rich family, the Bankses, in Bel Air. So the show has the same characters and everything, same names? Same characters, same names. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen this show, Karen, but I remember that it grew out of this viral trailer that was sort of pretending to be a reboot of the original Fresh Prince show. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Will Smith saw this fan fiction trailer and loved it and helped his creator, Morgan Cooper, shop it around. Mm -hmm. Peacock immediately picked it up for two seasons, which doesn't often happen. Yeah. Okay, so Karen, what was about this show that grabbed you? You know, Gina, I liked how race-forward it was, and it didn't feel the obligation to be cheerful just to keep the audience comfortable. And like the original, okay, uh, but it was not must-see TV for me. Oh, it was definitely must-see TV for me. <laughs> I watched it religiously when it first aired, Monday nights on NBC, before Blossom. I'm an elder millennial. I'm telling myself a little bit. Sorry. Did you wear your hat all to the side and everything? Like Will? <laughs> You have to get ready. Get to cosplay for the show. Wow. <laughs> this reworking is all about family and race and community, and it touches on some things that TV didn't or couldn't talk about in the 90s. Huh. Okay. Uh, give us an example. Okay. In the first episode, Will has just arrived at the Banks household, and you can feel there's some unspoken tension there. The first time Will sets foot on the campus of his new fancy private school in Bel Air, he interrupts the lacrosse team— Yes, the lacrosse team, to which his cousin Carlton belongs. And the team, 
including Carlton, is singing a song that liberally uses the N-word, unbleeped, Uh and Will wasn't having it. Yo, so let me get this straight, man. You really don't have a problem with a white boy saying nigga right in front of your face. It's just a word, dude. Chill out. No, I ain't chilling out. Your boy Chad was wilding, yo. First of all, his name is Connor. Connor, Chad, Rab, whatever the fuck his Wonder Bread-ass name is, he ain't with the culture, Carlton. And clearly you ain't either. And this is part of the reason, Gene, that I'm so taken with the show. Mm-hmm. They're not afraid to go there and dig into the tension. Will's not trying to fit into his new environment. He says he's going to rep West Philly wherever he goes because that's who he is. Hmm. You know, the show kind of telegraphs, yeah, we see you, without having to say that. They're not doing Race 101, which I could identify with. The other thing I really liked was how the show examines what happens when one person in the family does really well, while the rest of the family is living a much more um, basic life. And that happens in a lot of black families, even rich ones. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Karen, the original Fresh Prince only sort of touched on this obliquely, but like... We've definitely talked about this and touched on this at some point in the giant corpus of Code Switch reporting out there at this point. But unlike wealthier white families, wealthy black families are in physical proximity to poverty. But it's not just physical proximity either. It's like high-earning black households also have familial proximity to poverty since black people have so little generational wealth, which means that, you know, rich black families are often helping subsidize the lives of their relatives, you know, paying for light bills, paying for tuition, paying for rent, things like that. Exactly. And this whole notion of responsibility, guilt among siblings at different income levels, who stays, who gets to leave— All that can be explosive. Mm -hmm. And it did explode at Will's birthday party. Will's mom, Vi, comes to visit him and gets into it with Aunt Viv over the Banks' birthday gift to him, an outrageously expensive of super limited edition sneakers. They still call them right, Gene? Yes. Sneakers. (laughs) Well, Viv and Vi are in a whispered fight in front of other people at the party, and Viv is telling her sister to just chill. Please do not make this about our issues. Will is happy with his gift. That's all that matters. Let's drop it. Not when you throw your money around to disrespect me in front of my child. I just don't understand you. How you got like this? Like what? Being successful? Because that's what you're mad about. Because more of my dreams came true, so now you got to cut me down whenever you get a chance. Girl, your dreams came true because mama supported you. You were carried. So, KGB, how do audiences feel about this, right? Compared to the original Fresh Prince, which was, you know, real, real silly, this new version is kind of grim and dramatic. Maybe grim is not the right word, but it feels like it's leaning into some of, like, those very special episodes of the 90s version that were only sort of, like, we only sort of went into the heavy stuff occasionally. It is, Gene, but this show also gives us more backstory, which I appreciated. And it shows us that while wealth has its privileges, there are real costs, psychological, social, even physical, to being a successful black person in 21st century America. And I think it's okay to show that without having a laugh track. All right, y'all. The show is Bel Air, and the whole first season is streaming now on Peacock. Thank you, KGB. Appreciate you. You're welcome. And now we got another comedic TV show in our lineup. Our producer, Alyssa Jung-Perry, has been talking to us about this show since it came out this summer. Alyssa, tell us all about it. All right, Parker. I literally binged This Fool, which is streaming on Hulu now, in almost one day. Ooh, I haven't seen that show yet, but I do love a good binge. (laughs) Me too. 
Especially this one, because this fool, it's about a Mexican-American guy named Julio Lopez, who's played by show creator and comedian Chris Estrada. So, Parker, I love this show so much that I reached out to talk to Chris about the show and his character, Julio. I think he's kind of neurotic and kind of has depression. And, you know, the way I kind of see him is probably like me in that he didn't go to college. You know, he kind of has a job that he fell into. So the job that Julio falls into is a counselor at a gang rehabilitation nonprofit called Hugs Not Thugs. And so his cousin Luis, played by comedian Frankie Quinones, gets out of prison, joins Hugs Not Thugs, and moves in with Julio's whole family. You know, his mom, grandma. Oh, it's like a full house. Oh, big time. And they all live in South Central L.A., which Chris wanted it to be a central part of the show. That makes total sense. But also, let's face it, like in popular culture, South Central is kind of infamous, like it or not, for gang violence. I mean, there's a whole movie and TV series in the early 90s about it called South Central, which is literally about gang life. Oof, yeah. But Chris is doing the work of complicating the go-to assumptions of South Central, By bringing his own experiences to the show, he told me he wanted to show the L.A. he grew up in. It's pretty working class. And, like, metaphorically, it feels very far away from every part of L.A. It's very black and Latino. Sometimes gang members and the news revolving gang violence or stuff like that is the loudest news and the most sensational news. But they're kind of the minority. Chris? pulled from other parts of his life as a Mexican-American guy. You know, I grew up with cousins who were gang members or a family who was, you know, incarcerated. The cousin character, Luis, is based off of my real cousin, Luis, and inspired by some of my other cousins as well. All right, so the show centers around Luis and Julio then, right? How does that play out? Okay, well, remember Julio's cousin, Luis, joins Hugs Not Thugs, where Julio works? And they live together. So things are a little antagonistic between them. You know, sibling-like, but they're cousins. Oh, been there. Understand. (laughs) So what's something about the show that has stood out to you? Okay, besides the show being, like, super-duper funny, the cousins' dynamic is an interesting one to me. You got Luis, who acts overtly machista, wears a Raiders hoodie and chanclas with socks. Sometimes this guy who's A little more emotionally stunted is the more sweeter one, you know, who has the hard exterior. We sort of subvert it in a way where sometimes my character is the a-hole. And then you have Julio, who presents as a nice guy, a little nerdy, but clearly isn't the nicest guy. I don't like to focus on things like, oh, he stands out because he likes punk rock music or he likes films and reads books or whatever. Because I think when you focus on that... What you're saying is these things are smart, therefore he's smart, and these other people who make up this population of this neighborhood are not because they they don't like those things. I think those are frivolous things to like. Like, they're, they're great, and I think they inform a character, but I don't think they're defining. But I think what defines him is his existential dread. We love existentialism. Totally. The nuances are why I love this fool. The show does a good job of touching on structural class differences that we normally don't see on TV. Like this one episode where Julio catches someone stealing recycling cans from his house. We're poor! We need those cans! 
You're not poor, you broke. There's a difference. I'm fucking poor. You ever been late on your utility bills? Yeah, all the time. Well, I've never been late on my utility bills. You know why? Because I don't have a motherfucking house to live in because I'm poor. I wish I was broke enough to even have a bill. Must be nice. But whatever, man. You keep up. Broke asshole. That's something that actually happened in my life. I had to find a way to explain that in a way and give it context within working class people, people who are living paycheck to paycheck. There's still a class distinction between people who are living on the streets. I do like that they dig deep into that because sometimes when shows have something to say about class, we just get these very rich and white characters, like in The White Lotus or Succession. So right. Yeah, so this fool seems to add something more nuanced to that discussion. That is to say, I need to add this fool to my list. And don't worry, you got time to binge this, Parker. They just got greenlit for a second season by Hulu. Incredible. Thanks, AJP, for bringing this fool to us. Thanks, Parker. And that's our show, y'all. You can follow us on IG at NPR Code Switch. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Code Switch Plus listeners. We appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber. Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. And it also helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org slash codeswitch. This episode was produced by Alyssa Jong Perry. It was edited by Dahlia Mortada and Christina Kala. And a big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive, Lori Lizaraga, Karen Grigsby Bates, Kumari Devarajan, Jess Kung, Diva Modisham, L.A. Johnson, and Verilyn Williams. Our intern is Yodanos Tesfazion. And I'm Gene Demby. I'm B.A. Parker. Be easy, y'all. Hydrate. 